This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show... LAPD canine legend and master trainer Mike Gooseby. Now this topic is near and dear to me. I've had German Shepherds in most of my life and I also see not only the preventative element of dog ownership but the incredible application when it comes to the world of law enforcement. Now recently there's been pressure on law enforcement agencies to get rid of their canine programs. So there is no better person than Mike to really unpack not only this issue, but the incredible value and the lives saved both in uniform and the people that they're pursuing when it comes to the application of the canine. So we discuss a host of topics from his own childhood within the gang culture, his journey into law enforcement, canines, training, some of the lives saved through his own canine, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike Gooseby. Enjoy.
Well, Mike, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Now, how are you feeling? Because I know you were ill last week. We rescheduled. Are you all good now, physically? I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, I, I, uh, I, I, once again, I, I, COVID missed me. I think it only hits mere mortals. I'm not a mere mortal, evidently, so I'm good. The <laughs> boss had it, but I didn't get it. So, knock on wood, <laughs> we're good. Beautiful. Well, it was George Ryan that connected us. I want to make sure I, you know, thank him for the connection. So, how do you know George? I mean, obviously, you're in the same department, but where did your paths cross initially? George is a good man. George and I first we 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 crossed paths. Uh, we had a mutual friend, Ron Sanchez, who uh, retired as a captain from our department. But Ron was heavily into martial arts. I was in the martial arts, and obviously George, you know, is in the martial arts. And we were uh, just training together and working out together. And then George and I ended up hitting uh, Metropolitan Division around the same time. We both went to the Crime Suppression Platoon, but then uh, we both we stayed in Metropolitan Division. But then we kind of took our a little wide in the road. I went the canine route and George with the SWAT route. But a uh, very good man, very good friend, good guy, all the way around. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. All right. So I uh, I was born in uh, Chicago, Illinois, and I lived in Illinois, but I moved as a kid. I was living in a more rural area of Illinois, my grandparents or my, my early uh, elementary school years. And then uh, I moved my mom to uh, Chicago. Uh, I was in the fifth grade. And then I uh, ended up moving uh, with her and my stepdad to uh, California. And um, we moved there because my uh, my grandmother, my stepdad's side, was a little ill. And she just needed a warmer cli- climate. So it was either uh, Florida or California. Um, I We went to California, which is good for me because I had, ch- I had asthma as a child. You know, Florida's very humid. And it kind of agitates asthma, stuff like that. So moved to California. And I've always been into dogs. I mean, my... my my stepdad was in the dogs. You know, my dad was in the dogs. I was in the dogs. I had dogs I was training before I came out of the department as my pets and stuff like that. And I actually wanted to be a veterinarian. But there was one thing that that halted that was the fact that I didn't like school. You know, and you can't be a veterinarian if you don't like school, damn it. So <laughs> I had to think of something else. And uh, I was working out at uh, Inglewood Kaji Kimball Martial Arts School. And there were a couple guys in the class whose parents, her dads, were their dads were uh, LAPD officers. And one guy, Steve Falk, would always come down. He's a sergeant in Southeast Division. He come to his son's lesson. He's always in his uniform, looking real sharp and everything. I was like, man, that dude looks sharp. And I started talking to him about police work. And one of the other guys, Connie Gordon, another mentor of mine, we started talking about police work. And right when I turned 21, I took a test. And I, I got on the police department. I worked, uh, I was young looking. I was 21 years old, looked very young. So I spent six months of probation in the field. And then uh, I got plucked out by juvenile narcotics and they put me undercover in high school, which is actually kind of cool because I got to go back to high school and do all the crazy shit I wanted to do as a student. But I couldn't because I get my butt kicked by my parents. So <laughs> I got to go to school and be a jerk. <laughs> so I was school and I was buying dope from uh, students. I was buying dope from people who supplied uh, narcotics to students. So that was a fun job. And then once that was said and done, I went to the street side of narcotics called uh, Complaint Investigated Buy Unit. And then that unit is where pe- pretty much one of those units where people call the police and they say, hey, I think that uh, House A and House B are selling narcotics on my street. They don't have any proof of it. So what we would do is we go out there and we as undercover officers and we try to get buys out of those locations. Sometimes it didn't work. Hey, they actually weren't selling dope. They just had some weird behaviors. That the neighbors, you know, 
didn't find very appealing. But then there were those times where they were selling dope. And June, uh, right around uh, April or May of 1991, I bought from a house in Newton. It was a uh, East Coast Crip uh, house, and I bought dope from them. Well, during our trial, uh, it became obviously during the trial, they found out the cop. I was an undercover cop. But during the trial, one of the guys had bailed out, and he was selling dope again. So I told the district attorney, I said, hey, they're selling over there again. She goes, well, it'd be great if we get a buy-in to them. She goes, but you can't do it because they know who you are. So we sent two other UCs there to buy dope from them. They went there. They're in a red Hyundai Excel, and they go there to buy dope. And uh, the the guys on the front porch, the suspect who I bought from before, and his and two of his uh, his brother and his cousin are on the front porch. The Hyundai rolls up. They go, no, we don't sell dope. Get out of here and leave. So they leave. They go, hey, it's a no-go. It's a no-go. I go, bullshit. They sell dope. I bought from there. Go back. Well, what we didn't know was that the night before, there's a drive-by shooting at the house. And the guys that did the drive-by shooting were in a red Hyundai Excel. So as these guys go back around, the guys on the porch just start unloading on them. They start firing these two undercover officers. They uh, they put out the help call. They come flying past, past us. And uh, the suspects come. And my partner and I engage the suspects. During that engagement, I get shot. I get shot. Return fire. We hit, hit a couple suspects. I get shot, though. And uh, so from there, I healed up. And then I went back to patrol. And I ended up going to 77th Patrol Division. And 77th Street is one of our... Uh, one of our more violent areas of the city, if you will. You know, we were pretty back in there, back in the the, uh, the early nineties. We were we we're really, really violent. You know, I worked there for about six years, but while I was there, my partner and I, we were on a on a, on a, a perimeter. We we're on a perimeter, and we're on this perimeter, and it ends up being a, a canine search. And so we see the canine units come out, and they're hunting, they're searching for the suspect, and they go into this backyard. We hear World War Three come out in this backyard. Like, whoa, what the hell is going on there? Uh, the canine guys put out, they got involved in a shooting, they come out, and the canine sergeant calls us over and asks us to hold the yard for detectives and so on and so forth. And he and I looked at each other that day, and we were like, hey, we want to work fucking, we want to work canine. That's what we want to do. We want to work canine. So I kind of just kept working and, and worked my career towards working canine. And finally, in 1997, I got stepped into the canine unit, and uh, the rest is history from there. <laughs> hope i didn't bore you no 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 i got lots of things to ask i'm gonna go way back to, to early life again so okay. i mean you ended up being obviously you know not only in the canine unit but revered so i want to go back to that early life so when you were firstly moving around um, obviously there was divorce as, as there was in a lot of childhoods myself included right what were the pros of the you know the Chicago to to the West Coast? Um, what were the pros of some of those moving dynamics, and what were some of the cons that maybe you experienced as a young boy? Uh, I think I think some of the pros that I experienced, I know, it, it, and it kind of goes back to almost if you look at uh, most people, especially young young boys that are growing up to being men. You know, I think some of the pros are that I had some strong men in my life. You know, my grandfather, my uncles. You know. They they treated me like I was their son. You know what I mean? I, it was and they they assured that I knew right from wrong. You know, and we paid dearly for wrong. <laughs> you know, so I think those are definitely the pros growing up. Is you had some you had some strong figures to look up to, and talk to. Those are the pros. I think the cons are the cons of this. You know, is just that there is that sense of the unknown to some degree, though. You know, there is that sense of especially moving from one area that you know everyone you grew up with and everything, you go to a completely different state. You know, so now you're kind of like a fish out of water. You know, you don't know the who's who. And so moving from Illinois, which was, it was it's still Midwest, you know, 
And back then, uh, the area of Chicago we lived in was the north side, but I was only there for a year in, in the north side of Chicago. But the rural part of Kankakee, Illinois, and St. Anne, Illinois, was very rural. and Everyone knew each other. You know, I mean, you a stone's throw and you're at the you're at your neighbor's house and they knew who you were and who your grandparents were, who your parents were, and you, you couldn't get away with anything. So you move from that dynamic to someplace like Los Angeles, California. It's like, oh, the whole world opened up. You know, all of a sudden now there's bloods and crips and, you know, and you, you can't wear red here. You can't wear blue there. And all these different things came into play. So those are kind of challenges growing up that you had to kind of face and kind of acclimate to like really quick, you know. And I think that's kind of probably what helped me acclimate to being, you know, I consider myself a good cop is I've been able to uh, assess situations pretty quickly and adapt to them, you know, because survival is the answer at the, at the end of the day. Whether you're a kid growing up in L.A. or you're a cop on the street, survival is, uh, is of the fittest. <laughs> Now, with that, did did you have dogs that also moved with you that were your kind of constant companion, even though a lot of your friends were left back in the last place you looked? Oh, excuse no, me, last we place didn't. No, we didn't have any dogs that moved with us. You know, we uh, we ended up getting dogs as we, once we landed here. After a while, we landed here, got committed. We ended up getting dogs then, you know. But I always wanted to be, I wanted to be, I was really heavily into being a veterinarian, you know, and I wanted, and I had my, uh, I, I always wanted a German Shepherd, which I ended up getting. I wanted a Bichon Frise, which I ended up getting. I was really into the dog dynamic and the dog training side of things. Uh, I worked at a place called Dog Lovers in high school. It was a, it was a pet store, and they did dog training, stuff like that. You know, so I was always into that type of thing, but it was always more so geared, though, towards being a veterinarian. But then right around uh, graduating from high school, I realized, ah, this whole school thing kind of sucks, you know? And so that kind of catapulted my becoming a cop, too, because my dad, you know, I, I remember he's in the garage in uh, – because he's a locksmith. And I go out there and I tell him, well, hey, we just got we just gotten back from UC Irvine. My mom paid for housing and I was going to go to school there and so on and so forth. And uh, we came home and I went to the garage and told my dad, I said, ah, you know what? I, I'm really not feeling this college thing. I don't I don't, I don't want to go to college. He goes, well, there's two things you got to know. You two things you got you to understand here. He goes, one, you got to tell your mother. He goes, and I don't, he goes, I don't know how that's going to go down, but that, that's up to you. You got to tell her. He's other thing is this. He walks me inside the house. So we go into the house, we go in the kitchen. He goes, let me show you a couple of things. He goes to the light switch. He flips the switch on, he switches it off. You know, look at that thing. I look at it, light goes on, light goes off. We go to the stove. He turns the stove on, flame comes up, he turns it off. He goes, let me show you one more time. He turns the stove on, flame comes up, it goes off. We go to the refrigerator. He goes, hey, let me show you this. He opens the refrigerator and I look closely. When I open it, watch what happens. He says, you see that? He goes, what happened? Well, the light came on. He goes, okay, but watch as I close it. He said, you start, see that? The light went off, right? I go, yeah. He goes, watch one more time. He goes, what do all these things have in common? I'm like, well, shit, I don't know. They're in the kitchen? He goes, no, they all work. He goes, everything in this house works. So if you don't go to school, you need to work. (laughs) 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 So so I had to get a job. I got a job as a uh, teacher assistant for LA Unified School District. And uh, I enrolled in in, uh, junior college. And then when I became old enough to become a cop, I took the test and became a police officer LAPD. Now, you talked about the, you know, the change from the Midwest to the Crips and Bloods, as it were. Did you find yourself in a rougher neighborhood when you initially moved them? Oh, yes, I did. Yes, yes, I did. I found myself in a rougher neighborhood. Uh, you know, um, I lived in 77 Division where I ended up working, obviously. I, you know, I said there earlier. And uh, I remember we, uh, my uncle took us to, uh, took my little sister and I, to see a Bruce Lee movie, Enter the Dragon, downtown on Broadway. We go down there, and down there, you know, it's kind of like that little jewelry district. 
and we're down there and he buys me like a little gold chain. It's like a 10 carry gold chain, but it was the coolest thing in the world to me at the time. I was 12 years old. I had this little gold chain. I thought I was, you know, a big man on campus. So I wear that chain to school. And I remember I'm in school and uh, this is my first introduction to gangs. And uh, this uh, Rolling 60 kind of comes by me, sees my chain. He goes, oh, man, that's a nice chain. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. My uncle got it for me downtown. I'm all, you know, I'm thinking this guy is just giving me a compliment. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so nice around here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm thinking we're in California, you know, oranges and palm trees. I don't know, coconut. So <laughs> he says, uh, that's a really nice chain. I go, yeah, yeah. My uncle bought it for me. This jewelry store downtown. It's right next to a movie theater. We saw Into the Dragon. I'm thinking this is a friendly conversation. And uh, that was my that was my naivety. Though. I was naive to that kind of stuff because I really I never really experienced gangs growing up at all. I never, you know, was ever around it. And so then he goes, oh, I like that one. And then it kind of dawned on me, like, oh, he likes this one. This that doesn't sound right. <laughs> so then a little spidey sense starts tingling. And so then uh, anyway, he walks away and I walk away. I, they call us in. And it didn't dawn on me, though, that he didn't really go to the school. He was just kind of hanging out on campus. And we were in PE. And I had to go change for PE, change and go, get ready to uh, go home from school. So I go to the bus stop to catch the bus to go home, the city bus. And uh, here comes this guy and about four or five other dudes. And they all come around me. He's like, oh, I check his chain out. And they're all touching my chain. I'm kind of standing there now. Now I'm kind of intimidated. They're standing there checking my chain. They're looking at everything. Then they all walk away. Well, then uh, they walk away. And I notice my chain is gone. <laughs> you know, the, the girls next to on the bus stop are laughing. They stole your chain, you dummy. You know, so that was my first introduction to that. Oh. Every face is not a friendly face, and you know <laughs> it might not be a friend as a foe. So that's kind of like my introduction to it, you know, to moving to California. It, it was definitely a different lifestyle, and you had to kind of acclimate in order to survive, and and you had to learn that really quickly, you know. So without a doubt. So I didn't realize. So I came from a farm in England. Then I moved to the states. Ended up in Orlando. Did fire academy there. Worked on the outskirts of Miami for a year, and it was very poor. But I really don't remember much violence in Hialeah specifically. But when I went right. and worked for Anaheim was really when I got exposed to to the gangs. And there it was more the the Hispanic gangs that were you know murdering yes. each other. Yes. But it was a real mm -hmm. eye opener for me. Yes. When I progress through my career, you start to look at a lot of the prejudices and pigeonholes that people put other human beings in, whether it's gangbanger or prostitute or you know mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then yes. 14 years in, in this profession, you start to realize these were all toddlers once. These were all babies. And then life happened, environments happened, and role models happened, yes. and then they went one way or the other. What you know, edu educate the people listening. As a young man living in a dangerous neighborhood in LA who became a police officer, what are the forces pulling these young boys and girls into the wrong direction? Oh, it's a lot. You know, I, I think I think that, you know, some of it is is people don't want to talk about it, but 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 poverty does play a play a role in something like that, you know? I mean you think about it you think about a kid, you know, and he sees his mom going to work every day she's working one job from nine to five and then she's working another job from five thirty to midnight you know just trying to put food on a table pay rent and take care of him and his siblings whatever the case may be you know or they see a dad doing that and they see that but then on the flip side of that they see someone doing a lot less and a lot less legal at times too but bringing a lot more money that's a force that they have to deal with you know and that's where their parents values and morals are coming to play to kind of hopefully outweigh that, you know, that want to have that fast life and that, and that, that quick buck, you know, that's where those values and morals have to come into play. And if a kid doesn't have those values and morals, 
they are going to go by the wayside. You know, you're going to lose that. You know, you need some, you need something constant there in your life that's opposition to that. The other side of it too, though, is that um, there's acceptance in it. You know, there's acceptance. You know, there's there, these guys, some of these kids. Again, they don't. Their 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 family becomes those gang members in the neighborhood, for good, bad, or indifferent. That becomes their their acceptance of that group. You know that that group, whether it be for for good reasons, but mostly bad reasons, accept them and and put them on this pedestal, kind of. You know, and generally it's for the the better of the group, not for the better of the individual themselves. That's that's where these kids. They but again, they're kids. They're young. So they lose. They don't understand that that dynamic of it. You know, and then before you know it, you're in a system. And when you're in that system, man, it's hard to get out of that thing. It, it really is hard to get out of that system. You know, we see it all the time. I, t- I used to tell people all the time that uh, I worked some juvenile some juvenile programs uh, early on, which is where I met uh, Ryan Sanchez and, and eventually met George Ryan because we were teaching karate and martial arts to some underprivileged kids in, in, in uh, Los Angeles. You know, and I used to talk to the parents. I used to tell them, I said, look, you know, we need to talk to them. We need to, we need to be with them. We need to, we need to uh, instill some things in them because if they don't talk to me now at 10 years old, they may be talking to me again at 16 and 17 years old. And the conversation is going to be a whole lot different, you know? So those are, those are kind of some of the struggles to deal with. And, 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 you know, and you also have to have this, um, the survival instinct in you survival, the survival mode. I mean, you got to think about, I, I think about when I, when I, my mom started busting me to school in North Hollywood uh, early on, she started realizing, okay, because I was getting, I was, just, I was, being influenced by some bad influenced kids, you know, and I was not just being bad influenced by them, but I was becoming part of the bad influence. You know, people go, oh, he hung out with the wrong group. Well, generally you are the wrong group too. And my mom saw that, you know, my parents saw that I was kind of becoming part of the wrong group. So they started busting me out of the neighborhood to a different school. But I remember though, that depending on where that school bus stop was, I used to walk between three or four different gang neighborhoods to get to that school bus stop. And that was a fucking survival mode in itself, you know, just just trying to get to school, man. Was like, okay, I can't go down that street. I got to cut over this way. I got to go through that alley. Maybe hop over to that backyard, out the other backyard, just to avoid this group, to avoid that group, you know. And 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 that your the way you dress, the the style of clothes you wore, the name brand of clothes you wore, the sports teams you wore, you had to really be careful with that because all of that was adopted by gang gang life, and you had to really kind of be able to maneuver yourself to that, you know, and unless you lived like that or grew up like that, you don't really have an understanding of it. You know, it's very easy for me now being 54 years old and somewhat successful in life, I guess, you know, to sit back and say, Oh, they were raised wrong. Oh, they should do this. Oh, they should do that. No, there's a dynamic that you, if you don't know, then you don't know, you know, that's just the way it is. It's It's a flip side of the same thing with law enforcement, right? It's very easy for people who aren't law enforcement or never work law enforcement to sit on the outside and point fingers and make suggestions and, and set rules and guidelines. But if you haven't really walked in those shoes and did it, then you don't know. It's funny. I had a conversation with a guy yesterday. We were talking about it. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, how many, how many, how many like life or death or critical incidents have you dealt with in your life? How many have you dealt with? How many? I mean, just how many? He, he couldn't think of, he says, well, maybe I consider one, maybe. I was in a bad accident with my family, and uh, my brother's almost lost his life in an accident. That's probably about the roughest thing I dealt with. I said, well, dude, I go, a police officer that's been about 20 years, 
that officer has dealt with at least a thousand critical incidents over the course of their lifetime. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the things they've been exposed to and the things they've gone through, it, it's night and day. And again, unless you really walk in those shoes, you don't really understand it. You don't really know. Well, another thing that you hear with this whole issue is, oh, it's because of all the broken homes. And, you know, if parents would just take, you know, raise their children together and everything would be fine. When you reverse engineer a lot of things, and I want to get to, you know, drugs as well, because it's another important perspective, but just so many issues, especially in areas that are stricken with poverty, more often than not, it seems like we're witnessing a multi generational problem. So we are fast forward to today or, you know, our generation. The homes are already broken. There's already an issue. You can't just tell dad who's in prison, I'll come back and start being a great father. You know, it's, it's multi-generations no, no. back. So talk to me about what you observed with that kind of principle. Well, so that, that's what happens, you know. I remember, um, I remember I was working at 74th Street School, and uh, there's this kid there. And I, uh, there was a rule at the school that you couldn't wear baseball caps uh, in, the, in the buildings. You can wear them on the, you can wear them on the, on the, uh, on the, uh, on the uh, yard, but you couldn't wear them in the building. And uh, this kid was wearing a baseball cap, and uh, and I, I just called him Johnny. And uh, I'd stop Johnny one day and say, hey, you know, you can't wear your hat inside the building. You need to stop wearing your hat inside the building, so on and so forth. And then uh, as I started watching him more and more, I started realizing that it was kind of a gang thing that he was wearing the hat for. And as a matter of fact, it was for H-Ray gangsters. And... Uh, I kind of had to talk to him again. He had the hat on and I uh, said, Hey, look, this is, this is strike number two. You can't wear this hat inside the school. You can wear it in the yard. You can't wear it in school. Well, he wore it again in school and I took it from him. And I remember he went, uh, home and the next day his mom was at the school and she was going off on me about this kid's hat and how I, how dare I take it from him and so on and so forth. And, uh, his dad was in prison at the time. And, uh, his dad was an A-Trade gangster who I ended up dealing with further down the line when I became a cop. Funny, funny, uh, funny part of the story, ironically. And so uh, she got really upset with me for taking his hat. So I said, look, you're, the rule is you come pick the hat up. So I'm going to give it back to you. Explain to her why I took the hat from him, so on and so forth. But then I asked her about the gang thing, you know, and I was younger, though. I was younger. So I wasn't I didn't have the police training that I have now. I was just coming more from an area of caring for this kid that was that was going to the school that I worked at. And we talked about it a little bit. She was very upset about that and said, I don't understand. You know, this is all he has, this neighborhood. I said, well, look, I said, we have an after-school program. And maybe you want to get involved in this and do so on and so forth. Me and another guy run it. And she didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, I saw this kid getting worse and worse as I was before I left the school. And then, well, he left the school first. He graduated or moved on to the middle school, elementary school. I ran to that kid again uh, when I was working at 77th Street Division uh, crash. I ran to him, and his dad was out of prison. And uh, by now, this kid was a full-blown gang member. And uh, I dealt with him one day, and uh, and I asked him if he remembered me. He said, yeah, I remember you. We're talking back and forth, so on and so forth. And I said, make it my my mission to to get a grasp on this kid, you know, because he, he, was, he, was, he was a gang member in one of my assigned gangs. I was working, I was working in a gang unit. He was a gang member in one of my assigned gangs, so... I was going to make my mission to, to kind of get my, my closet to this guy and try and make a difference. I mean, you know, you come on young, you know, you have this mindset, I want to change the world. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to fix this guy. Why well, need that chance? Because the next day he got killed in the drive-by shooting. 
you know, but and and you know, but and you look at it though, you know, two of his uncles have been killed in drive-by shootings. His dad, who was had been in prison the time I first met this kid, was out, but then he got killed not too not too long after that as well. So it's that cycle of violence that goes on and on, you know. And then uh, you know, and and it's one thing that's just one side of it, right? So this is a kid that was influenced by it. They eventually took his life, but then you have the kids that are that are influenced by it. And they see it every day and they live it every day. You know, everybody has their code of ethics and their code of conduct. You know what I mean? And we have our code of conduct as cops and we have our code of conduct as law law abiding citizens. But the part we forget about, though, is that that criminal element, they have their code of conduct, too. And their code of conduct requires you to act a certain way and do certain things. You know, not saying it's good or and not saying I, I, that I even want to understand it because I think it's bad all the way around. But. I can't ignore the fact that there is a code of conduct there. And that's part of the thing that we're dealing with, right? So you have such a unique lens because you were in a neighborhood that was, you know, deeply embedded in the gang culture. And then you transitioned into yeah. law enforcement and you worked in the gang, you know, the narcotics side. You were undercover at the school, which reminds me of the film 21 Jump Street, but it was probably a lot less fun right. for you yeah, personally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that being said, my personal stance on the quote-unquote war on drugs has changed a lot since i was naive to when i saw the real ripple effect of prohibition and how it empowers the underworld and the overdoses and the prostitution and the gang killings that i witnessed and pulled sheets over when you look at the environment that you grew up in a lot of these gangs seem to have initially started from simply banding together after being oppressed, maybe from other races, you know, when people first moved as immigrants and post uh, Vietnam. But now it seems like it's way more about the power and the drugs than it ever is about truly protecting each other. What is the impact or what was the impact when you were younger of the prohibition of drugs on this violence and then hence this multi-generational family destruction that we're seeing? I think I, I, I want to go back to what you just said. I, 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 you know, I can't look back to uh, to discrimination from being new to the country and slavery, those things. Because, I mean, I know they exist and I know they're real and I know folks are affected by it. But I can I can only go back as far as my memory takes me. And my memory shows me that the whole gang thing. At this point, even then, the, the root of it was power. No matter how you look at it, the root of it was power. Now, whether that's power perceived in a neighborhood as, hey, don't screw with us, don't mess with us, or power that I want my piece, I want my piece of the pie too, you know. But the root of it is power, without a doubt, right? Um, I think though that today, the, the as far as the drugs and the money and stuff like that, I mean, that's power, you know. I mean, they look at the drugs as, as a means of buying nice cars, buying nice clothes, you know buying nice guns. Again, they have their code of conduct, right? So all that is power. It's, it's their means of making money. And and it's I shouldn't say it's easy because gang life is not easy, no matter how anybody wants to think of this. It's not an easy life. I mean, you got to watch your, you got to watch yourself all the time, you know? I remember I had a, a friend, I, excuse me for going off topic, but I just remember. No, please, please go I, away. I had, a friend, I had a friend growing up, um, Sean, he lived across the street from us. And Sean's dad, lived in a crip neighborhood but we lived in a blood neighborhood and sean at uh when he was about eh, we'll say we were 13 or 14 years old yeah about 13 or 14 years old his mom kicked him out and sent him to live with his dad 
in a crib neighborhood. However, he would come back and, uh, and you know, and visit his mom, him and his older brother. The younger brother stayed with the mom in our neighborhood, but the two older ones, Sean and his, his older brother, Jay, they went to live with their dad. And uh, Sean became a rolling 30 crip over there. And he would come back to our neighborhood, which where we live was a blood neighborhood. And, uh, and but, you know, and I didn't see Sean as a crip at the time. I saw him as a kid I grew up with as a friend of mine, you know, and, and, a, and a friend that I was happy to see come back to the neighborhood because we used to ride bikes together and play together. You know, I was I wasn't I wasn't a gang member, so I wasn't really thinking about the gang side of things. But he was before my eyes becoming a hardened gang member. And I remember though that uh, we were uh, I was in bed one night, and uh, my mother came to my room and, and 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 woke me up, and she came to tell me that Sean had gotten shot right around the corner from my house. He was in a liquor store on Seventy Seventh Street. He was on Seventy Eighth. He was on Seventy Seventh Street, and he got shot at the liquor store, and that just kind of just the whole thing just kind of threw me for a loop. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Sean as my buddy, again, riding bikes together, hanging out, you know, shooting the shit, whatever the case may be. But this guy had turned into a hardened gang member, you know, and, and, and he was at the wrong place at the wrong time with all of his blue on and everything and some bloods and they shooting him. So, you know, and, and again, th- those, those are things that kind of, those are the kind of things that shape you though as you're growing up, you know? And so those things can kind of manifest themselves in different ways with different people. I could have taken it the wrong way where you became anger and I want to lash out the guys that shot to get this shot, my friend. And next thing you know, now I'm in this life, you know, or I could take it the way I did as uh, fear. <laughs> like, oh, shit, I don't want to do that, <laughs> you know, and it goes the other direction. But those are the things, the struggles that, that they, that, that they, they deal with. And, and again, if you don't know it and don't see it, it's, it's, and I hate to say it, but at some point it kind of becomes like a norm to you, you know? This is a normal thing in our neighborhood that people get robbed. There's no one thing in our neighborhood that so-and-so got shot or, you know, or so-and-so got jumped at the bus stop. Those things become norms. And that's not, a, that's not a good dynamic. You know, it's not a good dynamic. And, and it's not, it's, it's going to take more than the people in our neighborhoods to change that though. Yeah, that's what, this is where our so-called elected officials come into play, you know, but I look at some of these neighborhoods, I look at some of these elected officials. I'm like, how has it that you've been in office for over 40 something years? And yet your area has only gone down. But the flip side of that, though, is what? They keep getting elected. <laughs> they keep getting elected, you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of like a vicious cycle there. I can go on and on all day about that kind of stuff. But it's kind of like a vicious cycle in, in, in retrospect. But I think, though, that the, the, the drugs coming into the community, especially during the, uh, the rock cocaine years, the rock cocaine years has brought a whole other dynamic. I mean, I was working at 77th Street at the time. And uh, in 1992, we had a 177th Street division is uh, 12 square miles. That's 12 square miles. In 1992, we had 184 homicides within that 12 square miles. You know, and that, yeah, that's gang violence and drugs. I mean, it was huge. I remember we go to roll call and we get there and it wouldn't even be roll call. They'd, be, they'd send us out to crime scenes. We had, we had that many shootings, that, that much death going on, you know, in the city at the time. And it was just wasn't just 77th Street Division. You had Southeast Division had a, a high number of homicides. We just had more. You had Rampart with a high number of homicides. You had Newton's Division with a high number of homicides. But these are all pretty much poverty-stricken areas, though. You know where the drugs had taken a had taken a hold on, and the drugs took hold in one in, in, in a couple of ways, right? It took hold one where guys were making money, getting getting pretty rich off of it, getting pretty make lucrative. But it took another hold where people were losing themselves in the drugs. It was their way out. It was their, that was, they were losing their lives into it. They're, all their troubles going away. 
as long as they stayed high. So you had two sides of that dynamic there, you know? And so pretty soon, though, it became that these guys are making all this money were actually preying on the people who were the dope addicts, you know? And it was all happening within that 12 square miles of 77th Division, you know? And again, going back to where I was working there. So that whole dynamic, that whole drug thing just really, really decimated that area. It really decimated that area, you know? But, I mean, again, it, it, but we can go into the whole drug thing and who's responsible and how it got there and all that stuff, you know? But we all do know that they don't, they didn't disappear there by themselves. They didn't, they, they weren't, they weren't growing somebody's fucking backyard. We, we know that for a fact. There no, okay. no crack trees in South Central. <laughs> yeah, there's no crack trees in South Central, LA, right? <laughs> you know, but that, but that really did, it really did destroy families in that area, you know? It really did. Even strong families, you know? I mean, you know, people always ask me, they see crime happen or they see something happen with, the, with the, a young adult. They go, well, where are the parents? Well, fuck, they might be at work. I mean, are you serious right now? How many times did I grow up when, you know, and my parents might have been just in the next room on the damn phone. But if I knew my mom was talking to a certain one of my uh, one of my aunts, I knew she'd be on the phone for at least an hour. They gave me carte blanche some stupid shit. <laughs> you know, so they say we're the parents. Well, just because the parents aren't just because the kid is screwing up, sometimes it's not a parent thing. Sometimes it is an environment thing. You know, sometimes it's just a bad kid as well. You know, I mean, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of kids that get in trouble. Maybe not as bad a trouble as some of these other kids do, but they do stupid things and both parents are in the home. You see it all the time, you know. So to say it there, don't get me wrong though, there is some bad parenting out there. There are some issues that are that are that are caused by broken homes. I'm with that hundred ten percent. I understand that, you know. But that's not the root of all evil though. Well, you hear these people yeah. have, have this attitude of like, Oh, you just need to make good cho- choices. Well, if good choices was all that was needed, we wouldn't have seventy percent obesity and overweight in this country. It's the environment as fact. well. It's the environment as well. No, it, it is. It is the environment, you know. And you have to change the reward system. You know, like I tell people when I'm, I, you know, obviously I'm in the dog training. I'm in the dogs, right? So it's not the reward is not always what the what the end result is. The reward could be the action itself, especially like when dog training. You know, if I have a dog that's trained to go to a door and and, and find a suspect. He goes there and sniffs the door and barks up and a suspect opens the door and a dog gets a bite and the dog the dog's in a bite and the dog releases dopamine and 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 gets satisfaction out of that, you know. People would look at that and say, Oh, the bite's the reward for that dog. That that rewards it. Well, no, the reward is the action itself because the same dog, if he goes to that door and barks up, bark, 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 and I call him back and he gets back to me and I put him up, oh good boy. Well, he's getting satisfaction there too. And both of those, that action produced produced two different things for him, right? But both of them are rewards. It's just like, a, like you said, obesity. You know, the reward is the eating itself. <laughs> you know, I want to go eat pizza or I eat a gallon of ice cream. My reward, my satisfaction comes from my action, not from what I got there. That's what the satisfaction that that action has to take place. You know, and so that and that's the thing we have to think about. You know, we have to change these people's actions. Because the reward, yeah, you, you got to change. You got to somehow, somehow get in there. I'm losing my train of thought. I'm sorry. But you got to kind of change the, the the doing, the process. You know, it's easy to say, hey, you know, pull your bootstraps up and go to work. Well, uh, what if I don't have any fucking boots? Exactly. Or if there's no work around in the middle of a right, you know, Exactly. Crisis. So, you know, right. And, that, and that's the thing. And those are the things we have to think about. You know, you, you have to think about it beyond your own lifestyle and your own way of doing things, your own way of being raised. Because there are different strokes with different folks. That's a fact. 
you know, without a doubt, there are different strokes of different folks. And you have to, you got to think outside the box to come to some of these things. You got to look at some, you get to look at some, some deep, some deeper rooted issues, you know, like you hear a lot of people, they talk about, uh, they talk about cops and they say, well, they lowered the hiring standards. That's why you get these bad cops. Well, so you're saying that these cops today are bad cops because the standards are lower. Well, so what's the excuse for the cops that are bad years ago? If the standards, if the standards, if the standards weren't lower yet, what's the excuse then? So then we have to look at. So we have to look past that. Maybe it's not the lower standards. Do we have a culture issue? Do we have an issue? Something else we have to deal with here? Is there a lack of training issue? You know, is there a way of doing business issue? So we have to look at these things differently, as opposed to just trying to put a label on it. A lot of times we put labels on things. That's just our way of making it warm and fuzzy for us to accept it. You know, it, it makes it easier for me. It makes it it makes it easier for me to swallow it and easier for me to walk away from it and not have to really do anything about it. It kind of ends the conversation. You know, it doesn't require anything much more than that for me. It's very easy for me to go to the hood and say, oh, man, he's a, he's, he's a gang member. That's why he's messed up. Or oh, that's why he got killed, this and the other. It's very easy to do that, but there's got to be more to it than that. If you really want to stop the, if you want to stop these problems, you know, it's, it's got to be more to it than that. Absolutely. Well, I think I think one of the truths that's like really become apparent to me, and it's interesting because I've had people on that have written books about you know the opioid crisis and addiction in this country, and and when you look at the inception of the prohibition of drugs, so ultimately the illegality of addiction, um, it goes back right on the failure of the prohibition of alcohol. Like we know that was an absolute shit show. We know we know Al Capone purely because of that. That's really where gangsters firstly found their feet. And then we go into here, there's, it's built on racism. There was a whole, you know, reefer madness thing. And, and, and so there was hatred and there was job justification, really, and prohibition. And that was in the 30s. So here we are 80 years later. And taking that whole stance on law enforcement, there's all these eyes on you guys. I don't hear anyone saying, why are the streets of South Central so dangerous, but the streets of Reykjavik or Oslo aren't? Like, what are we doing in this country that's creating so much crime and division and poverty and all these different things? And for me, this is my, you know, my personal stance on this, having seen so much death in uniform myself, is it's just been an epic failure of trying to arrest your way out of addiction. And yes, the smugglers are, are horrible and, and people slinging drugs, you know, they're, they're horrible. But the mental health crisis is behind the addict who's the consumer supply and demand like you said right. I mean, they're preyed upon in their own communities and the people looking down their nose at them then go home and drink wine and whiskey and beer and no that's totally that's a fun. fact you know and again back to my back to my point i said earlier it's hard to sit it's very easy to sit here and and put the blame on the police it's very easy to sit here and say well the police do this the police do that well i i, I get an idea if you want the police to do less, then make all this shit legal. Then we got no, we have nothing to do. Make if you don't want us to do traffic stops, then stop. Don't running stop signs is legal now. Running running red lights are illegal. Are legal now. Speeding is legal now. But guess what? The police can't stop these guys. It's, it's legal, but they don't want to do that. They want it both ways. Because what you just said, they want to go home and drink their wine. This and the other. In their nice little community, but they want to keep all that stuff out of their community, and that's what they need. That police there they need that they need that blue line there to keep that away from them. That's what happens a lot of times, right? It's very easy to blame the police. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, we don't always do it right, but I will say this: after spending thirty-two and a half years with the police and 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 being a cop, 
you know, we strive to do it right. The majority of us strive to do it right day in, day out. We don't go to work thinking, I want to do this shit wrong. We strive to do it right day in, day out. Now, are there different things that are going to affect that? Absolutely. You know, like you said, you can't arrest away everything. You can't arrest away drug problems. You can't arrest away gang problems. There's got to be some kind of intervention in there somewhere along the line. There's got to be intervention, but long term intervention, an intervention has to be some sort of community trust. There's got to be, there's got to be some community trust in that thing. You know, I remember I was, I was working 77 and um, I was a training officer and one of my lieutenants was asked, telling me uh, I should take the position as a senior lead officer, which is more of a community police officer. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. I'm like putting bad guys in jail. He's like, well, yeah, you need to learn something different. You can't arrest everything away. There are different sides of the police work. And as I started getting deeper into that and started working that job, I started realizing that there is a truth to that. You know, there, there are other ways to do it, but it's going to take more than just the police doing it. You know, the police have a law enforcement job. That's the, that's the two words that make them up, law enforcement. Now, as, as, as we move forward, and you know, like to say me in my career, that law, that word law enforcement, that compound word took on a whole lot more meaning than just arresting bad guys or traffic violations. All of a sudden, we became counselors. We became social workers. We became mental health facilitators. You know, all these different things. And that's not, we can't do all that. We can't do all that. I remember I was my, one of my first radio calls when I was fresh out of the academy. I was in this couple's living room and it was a domestic incident. There was no fighting. It was just arguing at the time, though. And the one of the neighbors called, they were just screaming. But I'm in the living room and I'm 20, 22 years old. And I'm trying, almost 22 years old. And I'm trying to give advice to two individuals who've been married longer than I've been on the earth. <laughs> so, <laughs> to put in that kind of perspective, I'm they're married 25 years. I'm, I'm almost 22. And here I am trying to tell them how to, and never been married, trying to tell them how to do their thing, you know? And so I said, so we took a, we put on a lot of hats as cops, you know? We become problem solvers, you know, and and, and we become problem solvers real quick, you know? And, and, you know, you think about an average cop, like in, in LA, you know, that cop may have, he or she may have 20, 30 radio calls and they got to handle those radio calls. And one of the key things about those radio calls is that we don't need to be coming back to it. So you got to, you got to solve this thing and, and work it out and boom and move on, you know? So there's got to be some follow-up though from community. There's got to be some follow-up somehow, some way. You know, are we are we supposed to be the gatekeepers for mental health? I don't think so. Are we supposed to be the gatekeepers for social work? I don't think so. You know, and so that's where someone else has got to pick their ball up. You know, it's it's very easy to say defund the police, but when you say defund the police, you make it sound like the police are the only problem, or the police are the problem. No, and, and don't get me wrong. Sometimes law enforcement does play into the problem. It happens sometimes. But for the most part, so that's not the crutch of the problem. That's not, that's not the foundation of the problem. You know, and until you start fixing that foundation, you're going to have these houses toppling over. And you can't build houses on toothpicks. It just doesn't work that way. You got to have a solid foundation. So until you start fixing that foundation of it, whether it be mental health, whether it be the opioid, opioid crisis or drug crisis, whatever the case may be, which falls outside of the law enforcement realm, don't get me wrong. We'll show up with our big ass dustpan, our big broom, and we'll clean shit up. That's what we do, you know. But who, who's gonna who's gonna stop the glass from being broken in the first place? Okay, who's gonna stop the trash from taking over the streets in the first place? That's my point to it. 
Absolutely. And the glass doesn't want to be broken anyway. It wants to be whole. And that's the point. That's the point. Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I want to transition. We talked about, you know, dogs in your early life. So you find yourself witnessing this canine call. So talk to me about your journey into that program. And obviously, you became very successful within it. You became a mentor and a leader within that space. Um, You know, what what was the... what did you bring to that role that allowed you to be so successful as you transitioned through? I think the biggest thing that brought to the role that allowed me to be successful in the way I do things, the way I train my folks that I do train and folks I work with was my love for being a cop. It was my love for doing police work. You know, I, I enjoyed police work. I enjoyed proper police work. I enjoyed putting bad guys in jail. I, I looked forward to it every single day. I truly enjoyed that. And the canine, the canine world for me was just one more efficient way to help me put bad guys in jail. That's how I looked at it. And a dog became a tool to me that helped me put bad guys in jail. And it's a very efficient tool that did that. You know, it has eyes and nose and ears whose senses outnumber ours light years. And they can do things and smell things we can't do, you know. But make no mistake. Have they come up with a tool to find bad guys better than a dog? I would shit can the dog and get that tool. Because my <laughs> whole thing is I want to find bad guys, you know. And that's how I looked at it. I, you know, I, I looked at it as that. I know, you know, I, I always step my canine handler's toes. I say, well, you know, the dog to me is a tool. The dog to me is a tool for finding bad guys. It doesn't mean that I don't love the dog. It doesn't mean that I don't care for the dog. It's just that I keep it in perspective. I'm a police officer first. I'm a dog handler second. You know, I'm a police officer, but this dog is a tool to help enhance me to become a better police officer. Makes me a more efficient police officer. Nope, you know, a, a, a good police car helps me get to places more efficiently than, say, a 10-speed bike would, right? You know, if I go out and we go out and we buy certain uh, certain new, we buy we buy optics for our weapons or whatever. Well, we buy those because it makes those what makes us more proficient with that weapon. If the optic isn't working, then we don't use it. If the optic isn't, we, we take care of it. We care for it. We make sure it's working properly. We make sure the batteries are changing in it, whatever the case may be. Whatever you know, it, it's it's sighted in well. You know, so the same thing with the dog. The dog is for me is a tool to help us do more efficient police work. But not only to help us do more efficient police work, but it gave us another tool to de-escalate things. And that's the part that people don't think about. You know, that dog is a huge de-escalation tool. It gives reaction time to everybody. It gives reaction time to us. It gives reaction time to the suspect. And it makes, you know, because we all want to go home at night. And I'm going to venture to guess. I'm never. I'm not in their shoes. But I want to venture to guess that most suspects want to go home at night, too. <laughs> Whether they home be jail. You know, I think they'd rather go to jail than a coffin, right? I think they'd rather go to jail and handcuffs than on a, on a stretcher, you know. So that dog helps us a lot with that. On both sides of that, on both sides of that, you know, it helped everybody have more communication, more negotiation. What I mean by that is if I get a guy hiding in a trash can, in order for me to know that guy's in a trash can, I have to do what? I have to literally walk up to it, open it up and look inside of it. Well, when I look inside of it, there's going to be some real quick uh, perception going on here. About two to three seconds of it. What do I perceive? What do they perceive? What my actions are, what their actions are. And a lot of bad things can happen in that two or three seconds. You know, not always, but it can. But if I send a dog in there and that dog with a trash can alerts to it and lets me know somebody's in there, well, now I don't have to go to that trash can. I can stand away from it. 
I can call the dog back to me, and I can talk to that trash can, whoever's inside of it. It changes the game now. I got communication negotiation. So I look at the dog as a as a tool for locating bad guys for me. You know, I, I and I know a lot. I, I don't. I, I know we our department. Our department's a little bit different. You know, and uh, we didn't use the dogs as much as the use of force tool as some other departments do. And not saying those departments are wrong because they're not wrong because it is a, it is an effective use of force tool. It's just that we had ten thousand officers, so we didn't have to. You know, so depending on your resources where you work, you know, if you're working, you know, some department where it's just you for you and one other officer working for 20 square miles or, or more, then, yeah, that dog might be a force multiplier for you. That dog is going to be more of a support tool for you. Where we, you know, for us, we were running to cops all over in L.A. because we had 10,000 officers. So the dogs for us are more used for uh, locating tools. And I, I like to think that I really perfected that part of it, teaching that dog to be a, a good locator for us. Don't get me wrong. The dogs have to know how to take care of business because bad guys do bad things. The dog has to protect itself, protect and protect our team as well. And so the dog has to be trained to do that and be effective at that. But I think that my my mindset on it has always been: this dog is going to go find bad guys for us. Once the dog finds him, then I can get the dog out of the picture if need be, and now we can go back to conventional tactics and deal with it. You know, because the truth of the matter is, there are you know probably about four or five hundred four or five hundred thousand officers or more that make arrests and find bad guys on a daily basis without dogs, right? So I know that's possible, obviously, you know, but again, there's there's officers who make arrests with the who don't have the 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 best gear. So I'm not saying it's not impossible, but just because it's possible doesn't mean it's the most efficient way or the most safest way either. I do think that bringing the dog into the picture makes it a lot safer for the suspect and for the officers. When people think about German Shepherds, obviously, way, way back, you're talking about the Nazis, you know, and that was one of their tools they used back then. But then the next kind of thing that flashes in a lot of people's minds is the civil rights movement. And a lot of the, the dogs were abused in those ways. Right. So talk to me about, you know, I mean, th there's got to have been some sort of educational discussion on that. Like, how how was that animal, that tool abused back then? And how have they managed to, to kind of start undoing some of the damage that was the abuse of that? particular tool back in the 60s well you know it cracks me up when, when people people separate dogs from everything else you know there there are a lot of tools that we use nowadays that were used destructive in a destructive manner there are tools today that still use in a destructive manner just depending on who's who's the person driving the train right you know so back then obviously if you want to go back to the uh, the civil rights times or maybe Nazi Germany, the dogs are used in a destructive manner. They were using those dogs to just attack people or, you know, whatever the case may be, right? That happens. But so were cars, so were guns, so were knives. I mean, a lot of things that are used in a destructive manner. And it takes education. It takes training. It takes, takes knowledge base, you know, to and it takes a want to change that dynamic to make that change. You know, and it takes it takes revisiting history and noticing some of the ills or some of the things that we did wrong and change those things to get them right. It, that 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 happens today, you know. So, I know those things happened, you know, but I also know that uh, a lot of bad things happen with cars. Like I said, I know a lot of bad things happen with guns, but I mean, put those in the wrong hands, that's going to happen. You know, the the dogs of today are used more for their olfactory prowess than they are for their 
You don't you don't see officers on lines now at, at, at protests and stuff like that and dogs out there and just being attacking and water hose and all that stuff. You don't see those things anymore. You know, yeah, those are ills of our society, without a doubt. Those are bad things that happen, nobody to get by. You know, but that 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 paradigm has shifted. Our, the mindset has changed, the training has changed, you know, the rules of the game have changed, laws have changed. So there are things in place to prevent that from happening in the first place, is my point to it. You know, I'm not I I I can't just get up today and, and get my dog come in the car and decide I'm gonna use him as a crowd control uh tactic. I could do that, but I'm gonna pay dearly for it. But I can also think of getting my car on the side. I'm gonna drive my car through a crowd, through a crowd. But I'm gonna, I, you know, even though it's against the rules, but I'm gonna pay dearly for it. You know what I mean? So I, I think that we we've, we've moved past that. Well, I think the we co- definitely have. where I was coming that question is I've had German shepherds my whole childhood, and then I recently had them the last eleven years, and I'm in you know a, a very safe city overall multicultural city and it's interesting but there's certain cultures that will almost like cross the road when i'm walking mine she's she's not aggressive she's not barking at them she's not doing anything but it's 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 interesting as like is there still storytelling of that negativity in some cultures and communities that are still demonizing that dog even though that hasn't been a thing for decades now oh of course there's no question there's no question there's no question because you you, you're always going to have one way to not repeat history is not to forget history, obviously. You know, let's not forget it. But another but another side to that coin, though, is that you're going to have people who want to use that to their advantage to influence the minds of other people. You have that, you know. And then you have that segment, though, that to go back to the person that you said you walked the dog and they crossed the street. Well, that's just generational and generational of, 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 of stories being told and you're not seeing anything different. Or being exposed to anything different. So the only thing you have to fall back on is the fact that, oh, she has a German Shepherd, those things bite. It's a big dog's gonna bite me. You know, that that's 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 almost like a uh it's almost like a kid that loves dogs. Then all of a sudden they play with one neighbor's dog, that neighbor's dog bites him. The game changed now. That kid's story about dogs is gonna change now. They're gonna talk about that dog that bit them, and they're gonna tell that friend and that friend and that friend. And somewhere along the line, you're gonna influence somebody's mindset that dogs are dangerous. I got bit. You're going to get bit, you know, and those things don't change or if someone's knowledge base doesn't change, they're not exposed to something else. They don't see it. They're not explained. It's not explained to them. Then, yeah, you're going to have you're going to have that dynamic still play in there. You know, you're going to have that. So you can't you can't really account for those. But the ones we can't account for are the ones who are using it in the wrong manner to try and influence the mindset and the thoughts and actions of other people. And that's the problem with it. today. We see a lot more of that. We definitely see a lot more of that. So with that, one of my friends is a canine officer in Gainesville, Florida, and they have been experiencing horrendous issues where they're on and then all right. of a sudden someone shuts them down. And then and there's this opposition to the canine role. She said that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, she, she was understanding that California, the state, is trying to change some rules about canines and that might yes. threaten some of the rules. So talk to me about that. You have this misperception. I want to get to some of the amazing actions of your canine specifically but before we do talk to me about this uh this misunderstanding and like you said how some of this naivety is being used as a political crowbar to negatively affect law enforcement and the ability to use a dog as you said proactively that saves lives not takes it right so well yeah so there's 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 a bill in california i think it's ab 742 and they want to prohibit the use of dogs that uh, that bite people 
or go out and find people unleashed, you know, and, but the facts don't, the facts don't support it because they're putting it out, you know, you know, dogs being used again, verbiage on there is dogs being used in crowd control. You know, that's not happening. You know, and it's funny though, because the state of California is probably, you know, looking at it from the canines aspect, there's probably a lot more control-based canine work going in California than most areas of the country. You know what I mean by control? There's a lot of controls on the dog where the dogs aren't allowed to stand to bite as long. There's a lot more focus on obedience and stuff like that and tactics and things of that nature, right? So, but you have, but again, you have someone that wants to pander to the fears or, or instill fear in people that the police dogs are the boogeyman. You know, and 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 it doesn't. It's not hard to do that because if you see a police car driving around, and there's a dog in the back seat, and in the back in the back partition, and what do you hear? Rawr, you hear the dog barking. What well, newsflash? That's what they do. Dogs bark. Mine does. It doesn't too. mean the dog is evil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they bark. Dogs bark. It doesn't mean they're evil. You know. However, though, if you add that piece to people's perception of the police or what they what they think, then that's where that that mushroom cloud starts forming, right? Because they put two and two together, but two and two must mean four, right? And so now someone kind of jumps on that and he's trying to push this narrative that police dogs are being used to maul people. And the reality situation, if you look at the numbers in the state of California, even I, I say across the country, the amount of people that are being found or located or coming in contact with a police dog versus the amount of people that are actually being bit the numbers is, is way high. I think if you look at it across the country, it's probably about maybe seven to ten percent of the people that are being encountered actually actually even being bit by a dog. Well, as a paramedic, in fourteen years, I went to one canine-related bite in fourteen years. Well, there you go. That's my point. So you figure out a hundred people, you know, seven or ten are being contacted by a dog. That's that's not what's that's not what's being portrayed here, though. That's not what's being portrayed here. It's making it seem like the dogs are being misused and they're and they're being used as a as to attack people, and that's not the case. The numbers, show me the numbers. Let's let's let's, let's bring all the numbers together, and then let's have a serious conversation about it. You know, are are there things that we can shore up in the canine community and do a little bit better? Absolutely, but I can say that almost in almost every arena, of police work, almost every arena of paramedic work, almost every arena of do- of being a doctor, almost every arena of being a teacher. I mean, almost every arena of being a banker. I can yeah, I can find I can find ways to improve in almost every walk of life, without a doubt. You know, but the, the the police dogs, as we're using them, they are valuable tools. You know, and if you want to reduce the amount of shootings, I would say rely more on police dogs because they 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 give us that reaction time. They put that space between the bad guys and the officers, and the more space you get, the less shit you get. That's just the way it is when it comes down to make that arrest. You know, and so the dog does gives that it gives that early warning. It, it, it gives a chance to negotiate, to communicate and stuff like that. So I had numerous canine handlers on. Uh, Mike Ritland's been on here. Um, one of them was uh, Billy, who is or was a police officer in the Boston area, I think, not Massachusetts. And his dog literally saved his life. And he, his dog actually succumbed to his wounds. Um, so he basically sacrificed his life for him. But it was the detection of where this criminal was that and like you said that moment that gave them time and he was shot himself as well but he survived his wounds but there was multiple officers that would have been killed had they not had the canine so 
Right. I've heard you on one of the other podcasts. I wish I could remember the name, but it, it was sound like it was a lady who was a canine trainer, not a law enforcement officer, but she worked with you in California. Um, talk to me about a couple of your career calls where, as you said, that detection dog without biting has not only you know, found the person, but also saved lives, which you would probably would have ended up shooting had you not had a canine. Oh, we had one. We had, I mean, we we had, I can, man, I guess so many of them. I mean, but once up my head, we had a guy, it was a man with a gun suspect, armed suspect, and fled from the police. And uh, the dog found this guy in a, uh, it was a water heater closet. It's a, you know, basically outside, uh, outside shed, little shed thing with a water heater in it. And a suspect was hiding in that water shed and his gun was in there with him. The dog found the suspect, barked up at it, was hitting the thing, called the dog back. It took a little while, but the suspect finally realized that the tactics and the psychological uh, use of our words and communications and so on and so forth kind of overtook it. The negotiations kind of uh, led the train on that thing. It drove the train on that thing. And the guy ends up giving up. But his guy's there with him. Had we walked up there and just pulled the cover off that thing, that could end very badly, you know, for him and for us. Or for him or for us, you know. could be both or one or the other. And those are the things that that's where we don't we don't understand. That's where, you know, using a dog kind of helps with that. I've had the times where the dog found someone hiding that actually wasn't the suspect. So, I mean, so we're working in we're working at my one of my dogs, and uh he alerts on the back fence and he alerts on it, he's getting all kind of sitting and everything. So we decided we're gonna go around the other side and work the yard. We'll go around the other side. It's a pretty deep lot, it's about a about a, a half acre lot. The dog goes in, so we enter the yard. Now, he got sent initially way to the other end of the yard. He goes in. He finds the guy right away. And we're thinking, oh, man, so we got our guy. Well, the patrol's guy look at him and go, oh, that's that's not the guy we had. So get him into custody. They take him away. And he's hiding. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then we continue the yard. We're finding the guy that the dog, the officer chased initially. Well, we talked to this other guy. And I interviewed him. go, hey, man, why are you hiding in this yard? You, is this your house? He goes, no, man. He goes, hey. He goes, uh, this dude was running? And I asked him, why is he running? He said, the cops are coming. He goes, I got a couple of warrants. So I ran too. <laughs> so this, but this is a guy that we weren't even looking for. <laughs> this is a guy who hadn't, hadn't done anything to do the, the original crime. But had we not used a dog, that could have been ugly. You don't know. You put into, you know, But the dog was able to find this guy safely, alert to his location, call the dog back, get this guy in custody, and move on, dust him off. And, and send him on his way. He goes to spend a night in jail for a misdemeanor warrant that he's running from, you know? But those are the things that 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 dog that help that dog helps us out with. It doesn't always end badly. Well without I, a doubt. I heard you tell another story um where the dog was hitting on a certain individual and he bypassed several people that, that were family members yeah. of their homes. So I think that's an important story to hear as well. So this was a this was a, this was an abandoned house. This is a robbery suspect we're looking for. So we're searching, and uh, Thunder's work. My first dog, Thunder, he's working out ahead of us, and he goes between these two houses. And the house that on on my right was kind of abandoned. It was kind of broken down on one side and everything. But unbeknownst to me, uh, about four or five transients were sleeping inside of this house. So he goes down. He's working. All of a sudden, he hits an opening, which turned out to be a window, but the, the the lower part of the window is missing too. So it's actually just a hole for the dog to go right into. He goes into the house, and all of a sudden we hear barking. So we kind of move up. We kind of put our flashlights in, 
And we see him at this closet, and he's hitting his closet, boom, barking, hitting the closet, going crazy on it. Well, as we further we light up more, we realize he walked over four people sleeping on a, on a, four people on the floor there to get to the guy in the closet. He bypassed all those people to the guy in the closet who's our bad guy we're searching for, the armed robbery suspect. So again, those are things that, you know, dogs are like us. And the more they do it, the more work they get, the more training they get, the more proficient they become, you know. But they're an excellent tool. And so he had he he, he for for dog terms, if you want to talk about it. He had a smorgasbord laying there for him. He could have chosen to bite all four of those people on the way to that closet if he wanted to, or ignore the closet altogether, just deal with them. If he was an attack dog, as we're putting out there, that they are, right? But no, he walked over all those people into the closet and found that guy. It was phenomenal. I thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world. <laughs> no, it's amazing. But also, I mean, that, that smacks of the level of training that you guys collectively must have done. So I'm sure there is a, an entire spectrum from absolute bare minimum terrible through to you know what should be a gold standard in canine handling training and this is the you know one of the arguments that's so ridiculous with the defund model is really most people need more training you know all of us all our professions if yes. anything yes so yeah. um talk to me about the level that you were able to achieve in you know la and i know that that dynamic is different you talked about the density of officers in your city versus maybe a rural department but you know what? What should be happening as far as increasing the level of training to create that kind of excellence, where a dog becomes laser focused on what they're actually looking for and is least likely to make a mistake that will end up hurting someone that shouldn't have been hurt? Well, that that that's that's that that's that's a question that can be answered. But there are many there are many. Uh, keep in mind there are many things that that play into that, right? I mean. One of the biggest things, which I cannot ignore, and, and, and I want to be fair to other canine units that don't have this, is that we get a lot of work in L.A. Our dogs get a lot of work. And the more work they get, the more proficient they become. You know, and, and the more work our dogs get, the more proficient we become as handlers. The more we see with that dog, the more we can work on, the more things we come across, you know, the more the, the different scenarios that we can apply to training because we've been exposed to them, you know. We can have a scenario in the field and use that scenario in training tomorrow, you know. Um, the other thing, too, though, is our department is very supportive for our canine unit. LAPD, from the chief on down, they're very supportive of the canine unit. So they put a lot of stock in the canine unit. They put a lot of resources in the canine unit. You know, that makes a difference. You know, you, 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 I, I, I usually use the term, I tell people all the time, you cannot expect Porsche performance by giving minivan maintenance. It doesn't work that way. You know, if I want this unit to run smooth and, and proficient and on the right side of the tracks, then I gotta I gotta treat it as such. You know, if I if I have a, a group of special people and special dogs that I expect to do special things, well then I have to treat them special. I gotta give them special training. I have to give them special support. You know, it's almost like a SWAT team, right? You know, I have to put some bread and butter, some stock into that unit because they're gonna be my in case of emergency break glass. So I got to make sure that when that glass is broken, they're able to go out and do what needs to be done safely and efficiently, you know. And so that's that's one of the key things. Um, the other side of it, though, is that we, uh, our philosophy and my philosophy in particular, and I've, I've always instilled this into our handlers as I was their trainer, is that this dog is an, is is an addition to our already established police tactics. This dog is an addition to our tactics, meaning that if I find myself having, if we find ourselves 
having to change the way we do things dramatically because that dog is there, then we're doing something wrong. We shouldn't be making very many changes because the dog is now part of our tactics. You know, there may be some concessions because I'm using a dog, but I my that dog should fit right to my already established tactics, my already my already established way of doing police work. That dog should be trained to that, not us trained to what the dog is going to do, what the dog may not do. If the dog can't do that for us, then we can't use that dog. That's the other side of it. You know, um, again, we have the wherewithal to do that. If I get a dog in a program and that dog's not giving us what we need, he's not working the way we need him to work, then we 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 should can that dog. We get rid of that dog and we get another dog in there. You know, I know a lot of some departments can't do that, but those are the things that have to happen, though. Those are things that have to happen. You can't you can't knowingly put a substandard animal out in the street. You can't knowingly put a substandard team out in the street. And that happens a lot, you know, over the years. It's gotten a lot better, but there are places where that happens and you can't do that. But that's everything. That's everything to do police work. I can't put a substandard patrol patrol team out there. I can't put a substandard sergeant out there. I can't put a substandard chief of police out there, you know. We have to make sure that we're giving them the training and the resources they need to do their job professionally and correctly and efficiently. You know, that's that's a huge thing. You know, so we, we have the departments have to put stock in their canine units. Now, once the dog is in the unit, now the trainers and the handlers have to put stock in their training and understand what this dog is, what the goal is to the dog and how to train the dog to get to that goal. It can't be something, everything can't be about the dog, you know. Again. This dog's a tool for me. I'm a can- I'm a police officer first, a canine handler second. Just because I have a dog in the car doesn't mean I have to use it. There are going to be times where, guess what? You don't get to come out and play this time. Sorry, Sparky. You stay in the car, buddy. I'm going to go ahead and do my thing. When I need you, I'll come and get you. But that, that's like everything else. I mean, we carry beanbag shotguns. We carry 40 millimeters. We carry sidearms. We carry batons. But just because we carry those things doesn't mean that we always have to employ them during the course of every arrest or every encounter. The situation is going to dictate what level of force or what level of tool we're going to need to bring to the table. And that's where you really have to be as a canine handler. You got to be smart in that, you know? And I'm going to say this instead and, and, and step lightly with it, but it's, but it's a fact. I have to be aware of the optics. And I'm stepping lightly with that because when I say that, I'm meaning that I can't be worried about optics and what's going to happen or not going to happen down the line as I'm doing police work, you know, but on the flip side of that, to a certain degree, especially nowadays, I have to be aware of the optics. That's got to be part of my makeup. So when I'm doing training, that's the time I address that. I don't address the optics when I'm in the middle of a, the middle of a tactical incident. I'm going to address those optics in my training. Okay. How is this going to look to the public? How's this going to look to the department brass? How's this going to look to us as handlers? How is it going to affect us tactically? Will we be more efficient with this, or is it going to put us in? The, it's going to put us in a bad spot. Those things I look at, you know. And what I mean by a bad spot is that when it comes to tactics, there's two prongs of tactics for me, and I tell my guys all the time there are two prongs of tactics. There's physical safety, which is officer safety, your physical safety, but there's also fiscal safety. And if using this dog's going to affect any one of those prongs of my tactics, fiscal safety or physical safety, then I have to question how I'm using it. But I do that questioning during the course of training. And if you're not training like that and thinking like that during your training, then you're doing yourself and your team a disservice, without a doubt. You have to train with the mindset of, this is my goal. 
what's the best process to get to that goal? What's the safest process to get to that goal? And safe is not always meaning physical safety. Safe is also means physical safety. You know, we don't want to do stuff where all we looking around, all of us looking around each other now, and we're losing our homes and get handcuffed on. Something went wrong there, right? So those, I think those, that mindset is kind of what keeps us at a certain level, at least in our unit. It's always, it's always at, at the forefront. Well, speaking of fiscal, one of the issues I have in, in the fire service is that we have devolved our work week to the point where, and I know I just spoke to an LA County firefighter, you know, they're working 56 hours a week. There's the mandatories because they're short staffing. Now these men are working, men and women, right. excuse me, are working 80 hours a week. Right. Accidents are happening, you know, mistakes. And then obviously you've got the mental and physical chronic illnesses and, and that has a fiscal element to it. So when these departments start cutting because of quote unquote money, to me, there's a gross misunderstanding of how much that um, lack of support at the beginning is going to cost them at the end of these careers, whether it's the health of their people, medical retirements, workman's comp, overtime, oh. etc., or lawsuits. One incident because you didn't set the training bar high and you didn't set the fitness bar high and you didn't train your canines properly. Now you're spending millions in these lawsuits. So, you know, what's your, if, if there's any you know perspective at all, your kind of philosophy on investing with money up front so that you save money and don't make mistakes down the road? I mean, again, it's, 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 it's everything we do. You know, you can, I know we talk about police work, we're talking about canines in particular, but it's everything we do. You know, if you're, if you're remodeling your kitchen, if you're building a house, you're going to start with a proper foundation. You're going to start, you're going to invest properly in it because you don't, you know, if I don't invest properly today and a decent roof, I'm going to get rained on come next rain season. That's just the way it is, you know? And so we have to have that mindset in police work too. I have to invest properly. If I'm going to do it, then I have to do it right. If I'm going to run the canine unit, I have to do it right. I have to support that team. I have to give them proper supervision. I got to give them the proper amount of time to train. I got to start off with a proper dog. I got to have a proper school they go to. Those things have to be up front. If you start off with crap, you're not going to turn those crap, that crap nine times out of ten. You're not going to get diamonds at the end of this thing. When you start with crap, you can pretty much end up with crap still, you know? And that's what they have to think about. But take it from the police standpoint a little bit. Let's put the police by the wayside for a second. And let's talk about our citizenry. Let's talk about our, our civilians. Okay? Same thing. If you want to really harp on defunding the police and not having the police and 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 so on and so forth, if you have this dream that there are going to be a bunch of social workers handling radio calls and showing up to places, then I, someone needs to throw some water in your face and wake you up because that's not going to happen. Okay, someone needs to wake you up right now because that's not going to happen. All right. If you start defunding and taking away from having a solid, well-trained law enforcement presence, then you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it. And, 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 you know, I don't like circumstances dictating my life. I like to control circumstances. I like to do things where I kind of have an idea what the outcome is going to be. I'm not always right. You know, sometimes there's mistakes made and stuff like that. But for the most part, I like to forward think things and plan things out. So I can kind of control the circumstances, right? If you start defunding police and stop building that up, you're letting circumstances dictate your life now. Because the time you need them and they're not there, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem for you, you know. And and, and I'm not and I'm not saying don't have standards, don't hold their feet to the fire. Yes, I am saying do that because I do that. We I, as a cop, I do that to other cops. I have standards. I hold their feet to the fire. So 
if I do that, I fully expect that the society's going to do that for me too, right? But at the same time, though, there's got to be a support. There's got to be that, hey, we need to do this right, as opposed to just do, do, away, with it, do away with it all together. And that's the mindset. So back to the police side of things, yeah, if I'm going to run a canine unit, I got to run it right. I got I have to make the investment. If I'm not willing to make the investment, then why even buy the dog in the first place? Why get a handler all suited up? If I'm not going to put the proper training and, and resources into it, then why even start the program in the first place? Because that is going to cause me problems down the line. I'm already setting myself up for it. I'm setting myself up for lawsuits. I'm setting myself up for someone getting hurt, whatever the case may be. So why, why, not, why not forward think this and try my best to blueprint it out and plan it out? I mean, do when you call a contractor to your house or do you call a contractor to, when a car is being built, does some guy walk up and say, okay, well, let's see. Okay, we can put a board there and put a board there and maybe put a board here and a couple of nails there. No, they have a blueprint. They have a plan. As they, walk, as they go through that plan, if something doesn't go right, they scrap it. And they might start that part over again. Ah, oh, damn it. Those cabinets aren't even. They don't work right. Okay, let's take them down. Let's redo it. That has to be the same mindset with this dog training. <laughs> it's got to be the same mindset. Okay? Ah, something's not right. Let's tear it apart. Let's redo it. Until we get it right. And I know that police departments, you know, again, LAPD is very, we're very, we're very fortunate that we're so large and 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 we in a major city like this because our teams are in training. They can train from three to six months. We have a lot of time to put our handlers to training, put our dogs through training, put our handlers through tactics and through all kinds of scenario-based training, everything. We can we can dot a lot of I's, cross a lot of T's, hot watch it, start all over again. We can do that. You know, but a lot of these departments, they're hurting. They, they, they're, they don't want to put their officers out of the field for so long to be in canine training because they're part of their patrol force. So you have to ask yourself, well, which one do I, which one do I want here? Which, what do I, what do I actually want here? You know, and you got to put your stock into it. You have to. You know, you can't. I mean, I, I think about myself. Okay, I came on a job. That was the first time I ever fired a gun. Was in the academy. But they gave me six months to learn how to fire that dang thing. Could you imagine if they only gave me like four to six weeks? <laughs> well, you qualify with six shots like some departments exactly. do. Exactly. Right. It'd be a problem, right? Like, oh, yeah, if I fired six shots, okay, you're done, buddy. Go get out of here. No, they put a lot of stock into it, a lot of training into that. It's the same thing with this canine thing. You have to put tra- you, you have to put the training in. And when you see something go sideways, you got to stop it. You got to rework it. You got to fix it. If you can't fix it, you got to say, okay, we can't fix this. Or if you can't fix it, try and bring somebody in that can fix it. I mean, you're going to have to put the stock into it. That's just the way it is. You know, and that, I think that's where we, we see some of the problems occur. You know, we see some of the problems because they're not getting the support they need. And they, and they need to have that support. You need to have that training, especially living with a, breathing, a, breathing, a living, breathing animal. It's a dog. They have good days. They have bad days. You know, we got to work through those. Well, speaking of optics, um, one of the interesting things of interviewing a lot of people in law enforcement, and you know, if they're coming on the show, usually they're walking the walk. They're in great shape. They, they, uh, you know, studying some sort of wrestling, jujitsu, whatever their background is. And I, it seems like when I ask them, they don't have a lot of hands-on um, incidents, and it seems to be because when you walk in and you're in good shape, and they look in their eyes and they're like, "Okay, this guy certainly knows how to fight." 
there's a de-escalation element of the fact that they're not going to try. Now you see, sadly, some of these videos that are all over the internet of the very out-of-shape officer with zero training, you know, two, three of them getting just rolled up by a single person, sometimes, you know, even fatally, which is horrendous. Talk to right. me about the deterrent element of a canine. I mean, I would assume that they're without a dog... Um, let me rephrase that. I would assume that if you've got a dog and there's a fear of, of what might happen, that there must be a lot of times where the person just comes out without even releasing the dog because of the potential, because of the deterrent element, which would be another asset of a canine. All right. I'm writing this word down, deterrent. I'm going to go back to that. I just want to hit on something you just talked about real quick. Okay. You talked about an officer that trains and does jujitsu or martial arts or whatever, and sometimes the bad guy might see them and they look like they're in shape or whatever and don't want to deal with them, right? But what's different about that officer that did that training and that martial arts? That officer has a different level of confidence. They have a different level of confidence. They have a different level of carrying themselves. And they also know that although I can fight and I enjoy it because I work it out and I do it, the shit still hurts sometimes. So I don't look for it. <laughs> okay. You know, I don't look for it. So that's a, you're going to have a different officer there. You have an officer that's a little bit more confident in themselves. They're going to let things slide because they have confidence in their ability. You know, they're going to position themselves a little bit differently because they already have their forward thinking how this thing could turn out. Well, that's the same thing when it comes to training a dog, though. We have to have that confidence in our dogs and, 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 and knowing that our training, we don't have to just go haywire with it. I can call my dog back. I can release my dog here. I can put my dog on a bike there. I can, we can, we can have to have that same kind of confidence, same kind of training. That same training that, that produced that better officer for you, the same training that produced that better dog for you. So that's the thing. That's, that's, that training is the key and the confidence is key. But there's a deterrent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen guys that have had four or five guns pointed at them and they are not going along the program. But the moment the dog pulls, the car pulls up, I've seen the car pull up and the dog is just barking. And the guy's like, oh, oh shit. And all of a sudden they give up, they start, they start complying. Because there's that, that's that fear we talked about before. You know, I see a German shepherd coming towards me, I cross the street over the case may be. You know, but at the same time, though, people, people have the ability to reason. They have the ability to trust. They have the ability to think that, well, they're not gonna, I got my hands right, they're gonna shoot me six. These, these, these four or five guns are not gonna shoot. But they don't know what that dog's gonna do. If they release that dog, I'm going to get back to what they're thinking, you know? So, yeah, that determinant is definitely there. There's been numerous times where a dog has been brought to the scene and they're giving announcements at a place where someone's broken into the place. They're burglarizing the place. They're hiding inside. They get there. They start giving canine announcements. and The dog starts barking, whatever. And all of a sudden, people give up because they don't want to encounter the dog. So that's huge. But those aren't the ones they're talking about this new bill. They don't focus on those. Exactly. No one wants to talk about that. That's Yeah. Let's not talk about those good times. Let's talk about the bad times, okay? Because I don't want you getting, I don't want you supporting this, supporting the police. I want you to go against them. I don't want you to support police dogs. I want you to go against it. So they're going to tell those stories. But those happen all the time. All the time you get, you, you, you get those situations where the dog could have been used and it didn't have to be used, you know? But one important thing, too, I told you back in the day I was really big into, um, into dogs. And I used to get dog books all the time in these dog magazines. I remember getting this Dog World magazine. And there's this company down south. And everything was in a magazine because there was no internet and stuff back then. So I went for these Dog World magazines like it was like the Christmas catalog coming in. And I just look at the different dogs for sale. Just like one day I'm going to get that kind of dog. I'm going to get that dog. Well, there's this company down south. They sold Doberman pictures. And I remember the ad 
they had uh they were they were like Doberman pitches they they were sold for personal protection or whatever case may be guard dogs right and I remember they had this one picture on there with two pictures they had a Doberman's head and they had a gun and underneath it said what's the difference between these two and then underneath it said one of them can be recalled and it's true <laughs> it's that's true. a great advert. I can call that dog back yeah I can call that dog back. But when hot rocks start going down range, I can't I can't call those back. Good, bad, or indifferent. No matter what changes, what might change millisecond wise, I can't call that hot rock back. I can call that dog back. And that's huge. And those are the things that people don't think about. You know, we're doing some training. We're just we're we're just kind of uh just messing around with it. And that's something we would do. But I was in a train outside the box. And because if I can do outside the box stuff in training, that tells me that the the lower level stuff that I do in the real world will be able to handle no problem, right? So we're doing some active shooter training with the dogs. And nine times out of ten, let me just put that out there, we would not use a dog in an active shooter situation. But we were doing it. And uh, I remember I had some explorers hiding for us and some, some uh, role players and stuff. We had the dogs in muzzle. And then we were going through, and a couple of the role players who were acting like people that had been shot were getting hit. Some of the dogs were finding them and hitting them. And I remember one of the kids said, as we got done, everything we we're talking about, we we're debriefing the kids and talking about the training. They were laughing and they were having sodas and uh, and uh, we had barbecue some burgers and stuff for them. And one of the kids said, he goes, man, he goes, I don't know. He goes, I think I'd be rather rather be bit by that dog than get shot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's something to think about. He's kind of said it off the top of his head, you know. But again, that's th- those are kind of things that we need to think about, though. You know, it gives don't don't take a tool away. If you want to add tools. And add some 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 more training to that tool. I'm with that, but be very careful. You start taking tools away because you paint yourself into that corner, and then and now you got a problem on your hands. You know, and and that's the thing. You know, we a lot can go wrong. A lot can go wrong if you you know if you take the dogs out of the picture. A, a whole lot can go sideways there, and I'd say a lot a lot more can go wrong by the dogs being out of the picture. They can go wrong with the dogs being in the picture. I can say that with a fact. Well, I want to get to the bite element because that's another important conversation. There's a lot of misunderstanding even with that. But when you were talking about not being able to recall the hot rocks, I mean, we had that tragic incident. I think it was about six months ago now. It was in like a Walgreens or something. And I think a guy had a a knife and a shot was fired. It went through. And I believe it was a lady in the bathroom, if I got that right. But she was killed. And when, mm-hmm. like you said, I mean, really, a dog is a is a less lethal option, just like a taser or a beanbag or something else. You're Absolutely. not going to have, you know, collateral damage downrange from a dog. The way where the moment you're having to rely simply on, you know, a, a weapon, then there's a potential of killing a completely innocent person, you know, oh. behind the one that you're trying to kill as well, or you know, maim if nothing right. else. Absolutely, yeah, right, because you can't see through walls. You can't see through walls, you know, and, 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 and things happen in split seconds and backgrounds change and stuff like that. You know, without a doubt, the dog, the dog does offer you definitely a level of, of, of de-escalation. And it's funny. We use that word de-escalation like it's some new some new term, you know, de-escalation. We've been de-escalating since the day I came on the police force, you know, police that came on a job. They've been de-escalating before that there. I, I can't tell there's been so many times where I could have shot and probably been fine with it. But didn't, you know? There probably there probably been plenty. There have been plenty of times where it have been a good shoot, but it didn't. There have been plenty of times where I could have used force, but I didn't, I didn't, you know. So we do de-escalate. Again, we we understand that 
when we have to escalate, that means that someone else has escalated. And when people escalate, bad things can happen to either side of it. So it's not like we want to go out there and get into these skirmishes. Okay. We, we'd rather talk this thing out. Hey, man, I can't tell you how many times I've had some big dude I'm about to put handcuffs on, and I can see him tensing up. Like, look, man, I understand how big you are, and you're probably a bad mofo, but understand something. There are 9,000 other people just, just like me. Okay. And you might get me for the first minute and a half, but all 9,000 of them are going to be here for you. And it's going to be ugly after that. These things go on and off real easy. Just as easy to put them on, they can come off. How about we put this on for right now for your safety and mine, and it will be cool. And if things work out, we'll take them off. That, that, we've been doing that for years. We've been doing that for years. De-escalation has always been there. So why now do we want to start taking away tools that help us de-escalate situations? Absolutely. Even as firefighter paramedics, the same thing. Behavior breeds behavior. And we get a lot of irate yes. patients and you know psychotic oh. patients. And it's amazing how the angry you know, salty lieutenant gets off and can make a perfectly calm situation turn into a shit show and then vice versa. The right person who's calm, demeanor can get into someone that's quite escalated and by the end of it, they're, right. they're thanking them for being so kind. Right. You know, I, I kind of like to be, I like to get in a room with some people sometime and just ask them, what do you expect the outcome to be? Or what do you want the outcome to be? What do, what do, you, what do you expect to come from this? What do, what do you want to come from this? Because you may want this, but this is what's actually happening. So do you want what you want so bad that you want to sacrifice all this that's happening? You want to let this happen to, to an even worse degree because you want what you want so bad? You know, I, <laughs> at some point, you got to start thinking about that. You well, know, I work, I, I work right now. I'm retired, but I work in a very safe area, you know. But just not too far from here, a lady was killed at her, in her house in a very nice community, a multimillion-dollar home, multimillion-dollar community by some home invasion robbers. So I, I want to bet you that if you talk to her family, there's some things they want to escalate rather than de-escalate at this point in their life. And that's what people don't think about. You know, at, at what point does it come, at what point does it hit your front door? And then when it does hit your front door, what's going to be your response to that? That's what people don't think about. Absolutely. Well, Another, I think, really the core of probably the misunderstanding is, you know, the the moments or the videos where there is a bite. And I had a guy on. I don't know if you've ever met him before. His name's Ray Murphy. He he's not an officer, but yeah. he works a lot with the canine. Yeah, I know Ray. And he works on ensuring the bite is correct. And right. you know, as as someone who's seen, you know, the wounds from a canine. Obviously, one was a was a police canine and lots of dog bites as well. But a police canine, it was a gnarled forearm, is what we dealt with, right. what we dressed, what we cleaned. Right. When you think about that versus being shot in the face, you know, still a pretty awesome, you know, alternative. So, talk to me about. I think so. Yeah, I would too. So, talk to me about the the concept, the misconception of what people think canines are trained to do, and what the bite actually ends up being and what it allows you guys to do versus having to use lethal force on a person that you're trying to detain. I, 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 I think, you know, you think about police dog bites. Let me just say this first, you know, police workers, there's two definite things about police work. One is that it is inherently dangerous. Police work is a dangerous game. Make no mistake about it. It is a dangerous game. You know, I can tell you that my family can tell you that. My friends can tell you that. My coworkers can tell you that. It is a dangerous game. People in the community can tell you that. But the other thing about police work is that at times, it can be ugly. 
It can be. It can be ugly. There's no mistaking that. You know, because when you're dealing with the ugly, sometimes it gets ugly. That's just the way it is, you know. And do we want it to be ugly? No. But I'm not gonna sit here and sugarcoat and say, oh, it's gonna be all all, all police dog bites are great and 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 they're very no, it can be very ugly at times. You know, but there are some things that can can be done to mitigate that ugliness, you know, and it starts on a suspect side. You know, I keep in mind for so city of LA, all right, when we go out to find bad guys. This is a person who's already been tried. This, the police have attempted to stop this person. They've chased after this person. This person has actually run, has actively resisted, you know, has hidden, has decided I'm not coming out when they tell me to come out, has been begged over and over again to come out over the course of an hour and a half, two hours before we even kick off the first dog. So there's some things that person could do to alleviate all that. And that's just give up. Exactly. To de-escalate, exactly. I can't tell you how many times we had to go out and find handcuffed suspects. We've had suspects who've handcuffed and kind of also wasn't paying attention, wasn't on their game, and the guy and the suspect got away. So we had to go out there and find them. And people go, Oh, that suspect is, is handcuffed. That's not you. The dog doesn't know that. The dog doesn't know he's handcuffed or not. The dog just knows that they're going to go search for an outstanding suspect as they're trained to do. You know. But you ha- they have you have they you have to have that mindset though that if they don't fight or run, the dog won't be used. But if they do and the dog is used, it doesn't always have to be ugly. But we have to understand that it could be ugly. It could be you know there's a chance the bite we yeah we we train the dogs we want the dog to get a nice bite hold and stay in one spot and hold on there and we work on that in training over and over again you know, but we work on a lot of things in training that the real world presents something else and it goes a different way. We have to understand that. Sometimes it will go that way, you know? Uh, for an example, there's times a dog might get a bite. It might not be as deep as the dog as we thought it was. The dog thought the dog might have thought it was deeper or felt it was deeper. And the guy's able to wriggle away and the, the shirt gets torn or whatever. And then the guy's fighting and the dog rebites, you know? Or the dog's on a bite and the guy's punching the dog, punching the dog, and the dog is tired of getting hit by the hand. So he does what? He redirects to the hand that's hitting him. Those things happen. We're not. We're not. We're not. We're not going to. We're not going to get rid of those things. We're not going to get those things. Those things are going to happen, and we have to accept that those are things that are going to happen. Just like we're not going to get rid of rid of officer involved shootings. We're not going to get rid of car accidents. We can put as many as many signs out there. We can make as many laws as we want to. We're not going to get rid of it. I don't care if you paint eighteen yellow lines next to the carpool lane. Guess what you're going to have. People jump into the carpool lane when they're not supposed to. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying so. Let's be honest with it here. Okay. These things are going to happen. So let's not, we, we're not going to put this thing in a pretty bow and a pretty box and say, okay, here it is. This is your, your new canine thing. That's not going to happen. And in reality, though, folks shouldn't want that to happen because there are going to be times that these dogs need to get ugly. There are going to be individuals these dogs need to get ugly with. And we are going to need that to happen. Both the police are going to need that and the civilians are going to need that. The community is going to need that. There are times when the police have to do some very bad things or things that look bad. I should say do bad things, but things that look bad. There are times we need those cops to be tough and take care of business. There are going to be those times. But for the most part, yes, we want you to be professional, efficient, and work a certain way. And then when situations do call for that, 
We want you to be efficient with it, direct with it, and end it quickly and, and, and de-escalate as you can. The same thing with the dogs. We do the same things. So is that too much to ask for? No. I don't think – I think that if if uh, the powers that be want to sit here and talk about some training issues and some things that we can work on, I'm all for that. But for you to say you want to just get rid of that, that, that tool altogether, that's asinine. And you're not, you're not thinking realistically. And you're not really caring for the community that, you, that you're trying to serve. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I mean, it makes – Obviously, I've got to speak to lots of canine trainers. I have a shepherd myself. You know, I, I have friends that are canine handlers. And when you just take a moment and step back and detach yourself from any kind of knee-jerk reaction, they are always going to be a less lethal alternative to the other thing, which is going to be that they're forcing either right. an officer to be murdered or them to be shot. Or like you said, everyone in the room dead versus you could have just put a canine in and maybe someone's been bitten on the arm. Everyone gets to go home. No, and, and, you know, and there's been some bad bites. I've seen some bad bites in my time. I'm going to say I haven't. I've seen some bad bites of our dogs. I've seen some bad bites of my own dog, you know. And But I can say, though, that uh, I've seen a lot more better bites than I've seen really bad bites. You know, because the goal is for the dog to find the guy, and then in a timely manner, we get the dog off the bite, and, and we deal with the suspect, right? Whether I go and take the dog off myself or if I call the dog back to me, but in a timely manner, I'm going to get the dog off the bite, and we're going to move on and do our thing. You know, it's the same thing, you know, but again, a lot of that plays into how you're reacting and how you, how the suspect acting, how the suspect's reacting and stuff like that, you know, but um, I'm not going to say they're sugarcoated. There are going to be some bad bites, but but for the most part, most people don't get bit. And that's the reality of the situation. You know, most people don't. So, I, I you know, it's, like I said, police work is not, it's not pretty, you know, but I, I think though that uh a well-run professional canine unit is a is a huge asset to a department, but even more so to a community, without a doubt. And that's for officer safety, suspect safety, community safety. You know, you think about this. You know, if you if you you're at home in your neighborhood, and you find out some suspects robbed a store or something. The police chase them, and it's three o'clock in the morning. You're in your bed sleeping. Your neighbors are in their bed sleeping. Family members, and all of a sudden, you find out there are three or four armed suspects running through your neighborhood, and they decide to hide. Your ship, your helicopter didn't find them. The officer didn't find them. Do we just want to just say, okay, hey, we're going to, you know, throw caution to the wind, go back to sleep, and hope it goes away? Or do we want those people found? <laughs> you know? Exactly. I can't tell you how many times we found people that have made their way into other people's houses. The dogs have led us there. We would never known they were there if the dog didn't lead us there. These are things that happen, you know? So I think that those are the conversations that need to be had, though. And those are conversations that aren't being had. Those aren't the, those aren't the stories that are being told. You know, and, 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 and you know how it works. So, I mean, if I want you to be on my side, I'm going to tell you everything that, that makes me sound more credible than what actually may be credible in the first place. I want to make sure my side of the story is what gets told and what you start believing in. So I, I, I get that part of it, you know. But I think that uh, both sides of the story, the, both, the truth of the matter needs to be told without a doubt. And there's some things that we can do in the canine community, as, we, as you hit on earlier, and we both talked about. There's some things that we can do a little bit better. You know, there's some things that we can do to build some more to, to 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 put that solid foundation of public trust in in, in how we operate. There's not there's, there's there's no secret there. We can definitely do some things better. We can definitely we can definitely shore some things up. You know, take some things a couple of rungs back down a ladder. You know, rebuild them, reshape them, and start climbing again. There's definitely there's definitely that too. There's no question. Well, even kind of flipping it around to the civilian role as well. I mean, I've I've got to train with some you know special operations guys and. 
when people are asking them, oh, what's the best home defense? You know, is it a shotgun? Is it this? Is it that? And they always say the first thing is a dog. Like that is the yeah. ultimate deterrent. So the very thing that I have in my home that I adore and I, you know, is my companion, but is also a primary reason is even if it gives my family a chance to, you know, for me to get to my gun or for them to get out the window or whatever. And then, you know, maybe right. um, if God forbid someone walks in more than likely, like you said, that bark is going to make that person go, ah, I think I'm going to hey. go down the street as well. So that very element that I rely on as a civilian, how is that any different in law enforcement hands? It's not. Exactly. <laughs> it's not different. And it's funny because uh, a family I work for, so I go to their house and I train their dog. They're, they have a Malinois. And I train their dog. And I know their dog. Their dog and I are in tune with each other. We hang out. We're buddies, everything. But whenever I pull up, uh, anybody pulls up, that dog comes running towards the front door because they have windows. You can see the dog. And it looks so intimidating. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I mean, I know this dog in and out. You know, I can tell this dog do anything. He'll do it for me. But it just looks so intimidating. I'm just imagining if someone didn't know this dog, you know, it would give you pause. It would be like, whoa, you know what? I might just pick another house. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I just I, pick another house. <laughs> when I moved you know? into where I am now, my previous German shepherd, sadly, she passed away at the end of last year. But um, she, you know, I had her in the previous house before and we came to this new one and we literally, I think we just moved in. So she was here. I'd gone back to the other house to grab some stuff, opened the garage, came through that way and came through the, the door from the garage. And I had never heard such a terrifying guttural snarl. Oh yeah! Until she came around the corner, and then like almost skidded like a cartoon when she realized it was me. But uh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, whether she is able to to you know actually enact the way that a trained canine, who knows? But regardless, like you said, she was certainly having bad intentions until she realized it was me. So it was a great deterrent if someone was in. But you know, even at the you know the other end of a door or at a window just telling anyone who's not completely committed that they're going to come in regardless that, yeah, that, that's a really bad choice and you should probably, you know, keep on going down oh, yeah. the street. And the flip side of that too, though, so if you ask most people to have large dogs, like say they have a German Shepherd, Rottweiler, Doberman Pinscher, Pitbull, whatever the case may be, and you ask them, hey, what do you have that dog for? I want a guard dog. So if you're in your bed and if you're at home and somebody breaks in, what do you want that dog to do? Well, I hope he bites him. That's the first thing they say. <laughs> exactly. That's the first thing they say. I hope he bites them. I want this guard dog. Well, okay, so you're thinking that dog's a good deterrent. Is he efficient to take care of your house? Well, why not have one taking care of your city? Exactly. <laughs> that's the case. I rest my case. <laughs> that was the, <laughs> the bow on that whole conversation. <laughs> I'm just saying, man, it's just funny, you know? It's a funny thing. It's almost like that whole thing when you get, uh, you bring people. And you put them through like a FOS simulator or a fat sim, you know, a force stops simulator, and they're shooting people with cell phones and wallets and and pennies and dollar bills, you know. And I understand that it's because there's a fear and and they're not trained. I get all that part of it, you know. But it's just a funny thing though. When it, like I said, you walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you start seeing it's not as easy as you think it is, you know. Well, why you shooting? Why didn't you shoot him in the leg? Why don't you shoot him in the finger? <laughs> you know? He only had a knife. And then you see those simulations <laughs> exactly. where they're 14 exactly. feet away and they still get stabbed. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or they fire a whole magazine around and none of, none of them hit the suspect. They hit everything behind them. The elementary you know? school right behind. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not as easy as you thought it was, right? You know, 
But again, I, I I understand that they're not trained, and there's a whole different uh, another process there. I'm just making I'm just poking fun at it though. It's just like the mindset though of a lot of these people that don't want the police dogs want a dog inside their house to take care of business if they're at home sleeping at night. You know. Well, it goes back that's to like funny. we said, the people that will look down their nose at drug addicts. You know, someone in Compton that's a, you know on on crack or whatever oh, yeah. the latest one yeah. is, and then they'll go back and pound a bottle of wine. I mean, it's the same hypocrisy. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Right, no, I, I'm with you. Yeah, well, it'll take 15 painkillers, you know. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. All right. Well, I think that's without a beautiful doubt. place to wrap up the conversation. I just love to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go, if you've got time. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, then the first question I love to ask is: There a book, or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today, or completely unrelated. Books I love to recommend. Uh, let me think. Uh, well, there is one book that I do recommend. I think that uh, I, I I like that I I I like police canine handlers to to think like a dog and to 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 train the dog as a dog, not as a human. You know, and that book is a dog's mind. It's called a dog's mind. I read I, I read that book. It's like a, I read it over and over again. You know, because it really talks to you about working a dog and and understanding how dogs think and how they act. Um, what's another good book that I like? Well, I like gory stuff, so any Stephen King book, <laughs> any Stephen King book would do you well if for, for enjoyment, for enjoyment purposes. Um, there's another book that I've been reading lately. A friend of mine, she had me read it. It's actually a pretty good book. It's a nonfiction about this guy. He uh, It's called New Jack, and he, he's, a, uh, he's a correction officer in New York. He's, a, he's, a, he's actually a, 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 a reporter. You know, he's, trying to get, he's trying to do the stories and corrections in New York. And um, they wouldn't let him do it because the reporter think he's going to tell bad stuff about him and go against him. So this guy puts himself to an academy. He goes to an academy, everything. He gets hired as a corrections officer. And it, the book just goes through this whole change of his mindset and how things, you know, his mind didn't completely change on certain things, but he got an understanding of it. Like I talked about earlier, you know, until you walk in someone else's shoes, you know, so kind of, it was kind of, it was kind of like a, a thing with society, if you will, you know, it's like you think it's one way, and it might be that way, but then you get in there and realize, oh, there's a reason why it's this way, you know, and then there's a reason why this is going on. Absolutely. You know, so that book is pretty good. Beautiful. Yeah, New Jack. It's a really good book. And you said that yeah. was a nonfiction? That's nonfiction, yeah, New Jack. Yeah. Ah, I'm going to have to see who the author book. is, maybe try and get him on. Yeah, that's yeah, a, it's a good book, though. It's really good. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that, speaking yeah. of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, let's see. There To the military and first responders, you know, there's a guy that uh, he probably would, I don't know if he would do it or not, but uh, I, I, I think that he has a good understanding of this. There's two guys, actually. I think Lee McMillian, he's a SWAT, he's a SWAT lieutenant at, at, at LAPD. And he's a former SWAT guy. I think he'd be good on here. And, you know, and his counterpart, uh, Ruben Lopez, who's a SWAT commander, but he never worked SWAT before. But he's been there a long time and he has a he has a he has a lot of knowledge, you know, and he sees but he sees things from a different perspective because he never worked there before. You know, and he's good. Um, let's see who else. Uh, from a military police standpoint. I mean, it can be anyone. That's that's you know primarily the focus. But my guest list is a diverse spectrum of people. So any great, right, great right. human. Any great human. 
Man, I know a lot of great humans, but who do I who do I who do I think would be good on here? Ah, man, I wouldn't expect this question. <laughs> <laughs> now I gotta be careful because I don't say this guy or that person. <laughs> Let me get back to you. On yeah, that. I was gonna say that's the secret way. Let's just do it. Um, yeah, covertly. Yeah. yeah, let me do that. Yeah, let, let's do that. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last question before we make make sure people know where to find your company and, and you online to reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? Uh, to, for me to decompress, I, uh, I have to take drives. I take a long, I, I drive late at night. I get in my car and I drive late at night and just kind of just chill a little bit, listen to music. Um, I dog train, you know, I, 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 I find joy with that. You know, for me, it's not, it's not always about the, uh, it's the process of it. You know, it's a process of it. just dealing with dogs kind of just kind of takes that stress level out of me. It's that little communication and, and, Communicating with the dog, the dog communicating back, and that's coming into an understanding and, and an outcome, you know, the wanted outcome and stuff like that. And sometimes I just, you know, I just I just chill. I, I'll get a glass of bourbon, put my feet up, and I'll just kick back. <laughs> Not alcoholic, though, people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, no, then, but, uh, I'm sorry. You, said, right. you were talking about um, training. So that's uh, Canines United? Uh, yeah, I do Canines United. I do with them, I and we have a seminar coming up in uh, next week in Sacramento. Yeah, Canines United. They, they and they're they're a nonprofit. Do a lot of good work for a lot of different agencies and stuff like that. Without a doubt, they do a lot of good work and stuff. For us. So I, I really do that, and I do enjoy going out with the LAPD Canine guys, though. You know, that's where my heart and soul is, and uh, those guys are out there doing God's work. We just had three of them shot a couple weeks ago during one incident. You know, and they were they they did a good job out there, and so um, I still like to get out there with those guys too. So the training thing is really it's 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 it, that's the best always been a passion of mine. So when you get something that you're passionate about, it kind of decompresses you. That's your that's your comfort zone, you know. I like to talk, talking and teaching. <laughs> now with the three officers, um, I think George told me that originally they're all out of the hospital and they're doing well now. Is that right? They're all out. They're all at home. Yeah, they're all at home. They're all going to be on the men. They're all going to be okay. They're they're all you know they'll, they'll all be back to work if they, if they choose to. One is close to retirement, so I don't know if he's going to come back to work or not. You know, he may. You know, but he's the kind of guy I probably will, you know, but they're all, but the other two guys, the youngsters, they'll be back to work in no time. They're all good to go. Brilliant. Well, Sorry I'm glad to hear about that. So last thing then, where's the best place to find you and any other, you know, projects that you've got out there on the internet? Uh, the best place to find me is at uh, gmail.com. You can find me there or you can find me on Instagram uh, at caninegoodguy. I'm on there. You know, I'm just a word of mouth guy. I don't really have a website and all that stuff. So, but if you get a hold of me, you know, you send me a message, I'll get with you. We'll talk it out. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Mike, I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah. I I never know where these conversations are going to go when I have some like bullet points that I want to hit in the, the journey. But your perspective from, you know, the, the things that you witnessed and the dynamics that you were raised in when you were a young boy to the power of the mentors in your life that steered you away from that. And then the other side of, you know, the uh, the law enforcement side, it's been an amazing conversation. Right. I hope this helps people understand the role of the canine and helps, you know, get people to fight for that in their departments to protect their families. But uh, it's been an amazing conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, man. 